0: Blog Talk radio.
1: Hi, this is Lori LeBay with Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm glad you could join us today. Um, we have a fabulous show. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, I want to um, just introduce you to myself. I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website, blog, and radio. And my passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss and dementia And that came to me through my mother's 30-year journey with the disease. And the platform here is really just a casual conversation where we pull in people who actually have memory loss, personal caregivers, professional caregivers, researchers, um, just to give a platform to share the voice of what's going on in the world of dementia. Uh, later in the show, on the second half, Rick Phelps, who is our channel expert living with the disease, will be joining us to talk about his new book called While I Still Can. And Rick was um, diagnosed with early onset in 2010. He will also uh, be online with us with um, his co writer, uh, Gary Joseph LeBlanc, and we will be hearing information about them. On our home page, if you want to join our conversation, if you have questions or comments as we go, um, if you're listening via the Internet, please use your chat box and go ahead and drop us a note. I will be watching that as we go. Or you can always call in live, and our number live is 714-364-4757. That's 714 364 Five seven, and you 'll just have to push one and you'll get basically into my waiting room there, so I know that you you um, you are sitting there and want to participate in this show. If you like the show, I would encourage you to uh, like us and spread it to Facebook or tweet uh, tweet about us uh, again, this is all about empowerment, sharing the knowledge um, that is available to us through social media. so today, our first guest. Um, that we had actually it's two, that were part of a panel of an event that happened yesterday and it was called The Role of Genetics in Alzheimer's Disease, The Evolving Landscape. And it was a, um, a, a panel of experts that, you know, talked about really what's going on and how do genetics affect Alzheimer's disease and how can it affect them, that in the future with research and genetic counseling and so forth. So we have two fabulous experts that are going to talk to us. Um, the first is Richard Maya, and he is an MD and MS, and he is a professor of neurology, um, psychiatric, and um, um He's chairman of the Department of Neurology, and he uh, just has a fabulous, fabulous background. He is the co-director of the Tabby Institute, Uh, for Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain at the Columbia University. And um, I will let him talk a little bit more about his background. The second um, panelist that we have um, from yesterday is Jennifer Williamson, and she is an MS um, and an MPH, and she's a genetic counselor at the TAB Institute um, for Research in Alzheimer's Disease and the aging brain, and she works really closely with Dr. Um, Mayo, which is just incredible. So I'm, I'm very excited to have both on the show um, so that we can really hear what happened um, yesterday at this event. And so we're going to go ahead and start, just because of schedules, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Richard Mayu first and um, get his information, and then we'll be transferring over to Jennifer so I want to wish both of you um, a welcome to the show. How are you How are you both doing today?
2: Very well, thank you. Yeah, very well, thank you.
1: Well, great. Well, Dr. Mayo, can you give us a, a bit about yesterday's event? Um, where was it at and um, who attended?
2: Uh, well, the event was uh, sponsored by the Alzheimer's Association uh, of New York City, and uh, they had uh, They're constituents from all over the city. These are mostly families and concerned relatives and things like that. Uh, and they came to the New York Times building on West 41st Street. And okay. the panels consisted of uh, uh, individuals from industry, uh, the association, uh, Max Gomez, who's a, a physician uh, who works for, I believe, CBS, mm-hmm. and Jennifer and myself.
1: Okay, wonderful. What, um, why was this brought up? Was it something that you were hearing kind of bubbling in the, in the industry that professionals were interested in, or was it something that the public is really um, searching and wanting information for? Or was it kind of a combination of both
2: that brought everybody together? Well, I think the most, you know, most physicians that you talk to, uh, especially those who deal with elderly patients, may or may not have Alzheimer's disease, the most frequent question we get uh, is, uh, do I have Alzheimer's disease or uh, am I going to get Alzheimer's disease? And and then if we, depending on how we answer that question, the second question is, is it hereditary? Uh, And that's probably uh, the biggest concern for people. Uh, Will they pass this disease on to their their family members? And it's, you know, it's a very complex, complicated answer. Uh, And that's what we tried to explain yesterday.
1: Okay. Can you um, tell us a bit about um, who was in the audience? Was this open to the public, or was this primarily for professionals themselves?
2: No, it was open to the public. Okay. Uh, And it was mostly... There are four hundred people, mostly family members. Uh, I think there were some patients. There were some worried, well, uh, individuals. But uh, it was, you know, oh, it was open to the public. Uh, I think they ran out of room, but uh, it was certainly open.
1: Well, wow, that just shows how much interest there is in that. So that's that's fantastic. And how long did the event last? Was it um, a couple of hours, or was it a full Two day? Two hours.
2: Of hours. Excuse me. Two hours.
1: Two hours, okay, okay, can you tell us um, a little bit about um, the topics that were discussed?
2: Well, we were asked Jennifer and I both were asked um, how we got involved in in Alzheimer's research, uh, especially the genetic aspects of it. Uh, then they wanted to know uh, what we were doing. Uh, mm-hmm. we explained that uh, then they wanted to know about the national Uh, Institute of Aging uh, Genetics Initiative which I'm a key member of Uh, and then we ended up by talking a little bit about the uh, National Alzheimer's Prevention Act
1: Okay, well can you tell us uh, uh, and I think uh, what I'd like to do is actually uh, for this particular question ask each of you if you don't mind why you um, got involved um, in the project to begin with um, and in this this line of work. Um, so, Dr. Uh, Mayu, if you wouldn't mind taking that first, and then I'll just have Jennifer answer that one really quickly as well,
0: when you're through.
2: Well, uh, uh, I first, when I trained uh, to be a neurologist, you had to be an internist first. Uh, mm-hmm. So you had to uh, train in internal medicine before you could be a, become a neurologist. You don't have to do that anymore. Uh, but at that time, uh, the patients that received the least amount of attention, but were the most interesting to me, were patients that would mostly come in from nursing homes with pneumonia or urinary tract infection, and uh, they didn't know what their name was, or you know, did, didn't know the, couldn't remember their family names, or uh, didn't know the date. And they were mostly patients with late Alzheimer's disease, uh, and yeah, there were lots of them. They didn't. No one seemed to be really interested in their problem, and that's when I got very interested in in, in tackling this this major health problem. That was in the 70s, and a, a man by the name of Robert Katzman, who was uh, then the head of neurology at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, wrote an editorial saying that he thought that this was going to be an epidemic as the uh, population increased in in age. And that really began a long friendship with him, between him and I, and uh, uh, that also piqued my interest in learning more about the disease. And then in the middle of all this, uh, so I was already starting to work on Alzheimer's disease, and in the middle of all this, uh, some relatives in my own family developed Alzheimer's disease and I after collecting lots of information thought that the most important risk factor after being uh, after being an older person is your genetic background Um, and began collecting families that had more than uh, you know one or two people in the family uh, collecting the DNA from them and starting to do studies of genes. And so that's how I got into it. Okay,
1: wonderful. And how about you, Jennifer?
3: Um, when I was finishing, uh, or when I was in my master's program, I had to write a thesis, and I decided to write my thesis on the genetics of Alzheimer's disease and reached out to Dr. Mayu to ask him if he would be my thesis advisor, and he agreed. Mm-hmm. So um, he helped me write my senior or my master's thesis, and then um, as I was graduating, he got a grant to study the genetics of Alzheimer's disease in Caribbean Hispanic families, and thought that it would be wise to have a genetic counselor on his staff, given that he was going full-fledged into starting this um, new project. And in '98, when I graduated from my master's program, I started working here um on the genetic studies
4: project.
1: Okay. Well great. Now um Dr. Mayo, can you uh tell us, you know, what, what exactly are, are you guys doing at the Tau Institute um regarding genetic research and um counseling?
2: Well um uh, first of all I would say that almost all of our patients, uh one of the most frequent questions we get is Uh, I'm worried about this being genetic," Uh, or they come in and they have a relative who has the disease and they're worried about themselves. So uh, Jennifer and I try to figure out uh, the family structure. We take very careful information, Uh, and all of the physicians here do this. There are seven neurologists here full-time. We all take a careful family history. If we see uh, more than one family member, even if they don't report a family member uh, with the disease, we ask about you know the health of their family members. And if we get any hint that there might be uh, uh, additional family members affected, uh, Jennifer uh, will fill in for us and, and collect more detailed information. Um, and then we have several studies uh, which we can... Uh, uh, have a patient participate in that helps us identify uh, gen- uh, genetic uh, associations by doing genetic research. Uh, now, uh, we very, very, very seldom uh, do genetic testing, and so that's an important distinction. Uh, genetic testing is usually done when you want to make a diagnosis and there's a definitive test and you have a treatment. So while there are some uh, tests available that identify people with mutations uh, or significant changes in genes, those genes are restricted to a very small number of patients with early onset familial Alzheimer's disease. So inherited early onset disease and these people get the disease between the ages of 30 and 60 and usually they have multiple family members affected and they're pretty much aware that uh, this is coming down their their family. Uh, late onset or more typical Alzheimer's disease is what we call a genetically complex disease in that uh, there are multiple genes there's probably as many as 11 or 12 genes that are in which Variations in those genes are associated with the disease, but they're not causal. And so, trying to explain that to families is often very difficult, uh, but it's certainly doable, and that's that's what we do. And we try to uh, help people uh, understand what their risk is and what they can do about it.
1: Okay, when you when you talk about um, you know the early onset from the age 30 to 60, then uh, uh, with these later ones, are you talking then 61 and over um, that typically aren't, um, you know, aren't the same type of gene? Am I following that correctly?
2: You're following it correctly. It's not the same type of gene. um, So a mutation in a gene is a devastating change in the gene that actually causes the Product of the gene, which is usually a protein, to be significantly changed. Uh, simple variations in genes uh, can be uh, things that just make us different from one another. For example, you have uh, variations in, in normal genes can explain why you have blue eyes rather than green eyes or brown eyes. But some of them are some of these variations. Increase one's risk to develop a con- developing a condition, but it doesn't cause the condition directly
1: okay um, so can you uh tell our audience a, a little bit more of you know what exactly um, you're you're doing at your institutes um, and how it relates to um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia?
2: Sure. Uh, well, that's a very broad question because, uh, you know, I'm one of uh, about 20 full-time investigators at the uh, uh, at the Institute. But okay. uh, my particular interest is in uh, family-related diseases. And so uh, I have collected families uh, from all over the United States with colleagues in various uh, parts of the U.S. There are about 1,500 families, of which uh, many of those families have more than three or four people in the family living with Alzheimer's disease. So we've collected those DNAs and recorded those histories. And we make uh, all the clinical information and all of the DNA available to other scientists. Of course, it's all anonymous. They can't track down who the people are. They just know that... uh, the person whose DNA they have uh, has uh, Alzheimer's disease, or is in a family where Alzheimer's disease is uh, present. Uh, they don't, they can't identify the name of the person or where even the person lives, but they can use the information to advance research. And then there, we have a similar study in the Dominican Republic because we studied a large number of Hispanic families uh, from that country, and then we work as part of a consortium of other Alzheimer's centers across the U.S. and even internationally uh, to identify uh, genes uh, that may play a role and so the goal of this research is to understand how variations in genes lead to the disease, how they increase the risk,
0: okay. and then
2: to hopefully turn that information into targets for drug therapy. The, the The hope is that by understanding the genetic basis of the disease, we can start to come up with treatments.
1: Okay. So um, can you uh, tell us a little bit more of, you know, you had mentioned kind of what your interest is there at the Institute. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about maybe what others are doing? Just, you know, I don't expect you to go into great detail or anything because it's not your project.
2: Um, Oh, I can tell you exactly what they're doing. So uh, we have a large, what we call a clinical core, and -hmm. this means that, in fact, we're the largest in the country, where we uh, bring in patients, Uh, We examine them. Uh, We use a a national examination study uh, profile that we characterize these patients for. Uh, We treat them just like their patients in any other clinic. We advise them about therapy. We do the right kind of tests. Uh, Almost all of our patients at Columbia are participating in some sort of research project. We encourage that. Uh, they seem to like it, and we certainly appreciate what they do. We often get the spouse or the family member who doesn't have the disease to also participate because uh, we also need to know what normal people uh, who don't have the disease, how how they function. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have clinical trials, so we have various types of uh, medications that we, we use. there. These are
5: randomized
2: clinical trials that study the effects of medications and trying to reverse some of the uh, effects of the, the disease. We, uh, we also do basic research in which we uh, create either uh, cellular models of the disease by looking at, at nerve cells. Uh, we also uh, have animal models of the disease, mostly rodents, uh, mice. We also, believe it or not, have uh, models in flies, uh, fruit flies. We can uh, put in a gene that models some aspect of the disease. And also zebrafish, They're small, like goldfish, that uh, uh, we can introduce a, a, human, a defective human gene into the fish. And we can see certain aspects. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing as looking at the human disease, but we can look at certain aspects of the disease to really understand how changes in genes lead to the, the disease. So we have people working on, in all those aspects of the disease. We also have a whole cadre of people uh, using tools such as brain imaging to understand uh, what happens to the brain and also develop ways to diagnose the condition early. And then there's a whole segment of our group that tries to understand what normal aging is and how that is different from Alzheimer's disease. So so is it true that as you get older you your memory fails? Well, our position is that's not really true. Uh, you know, older people uh, mostly have really good memories, uh, and they can do some things better than younger people can. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's in the absence of disease. Uh, so we, we try to... Uh, Uh, understand all those aspects of of the brain. We study the vasculature of the brain. Uh, We also study conditions that look like Alzheimer's disease, but they're not, such as frontotemporal dementia and Parkinson's disease.
1: Wow. So you guys really have a a wide variety of what it is you're doing. Now, do people have to, you know, live in your community to be part, or do you take people if they're if they're willing to transport um, to be, you know, part of your your trials and clinics and so forth?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, we t- we see people from uh, all over the tri-state area, but we also see international patients. Uh, we see patients from all over the world, uh, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, v- very interesting. Now, I have one question. Are you seeing a difference? Because I found it interesting when you had said, well, a lot of older people have very good memories and sometimes better than the younger generation. Is there any studies that you're aware of just going on um, with the way we train our brain? Because, I mean, I just think of even myself. I'll be 53 this June. Um, and I used to I used to memorize everybody's number and address and keep my calendar in my head, and I just can't do that anymore because I've trained myself to put it all on my smartphone. <laughs> and so, you know, and kids don't you know know math. A lot of them they you know they rely on the calculators and things like that. So, are you guys seeing any correlation? In terms of you know changes in technology in usage, because we're not you know we're not using those portions maybe of our brain, or that's my perception anyway that maybe I'm you know I, I'm, I'm that muscle is weaker in that area because I'm I'm not storing it, I'm allowing something else to, and I'm accessing my information different.
2: But well, is, I th- I think of these things as extenders. Uh, people who have calendars and cell phones or iPads or something like that you know if you if you take a careful history they're usually busy people who need an extender so the reason they you know their lives their lives are much more complex they need to have some way to record all this information so generally those people are more engaged in numerous activities than are the average person who maybe doesn't need a calendar or chooses to write stuff down. Uh, you know, we all need extenders to help us remember things.
1: Okay. Well, that, that's an interesting way to, to look at it. I didn't know, because um, I mean, I, I feel definitely I'm in overload and I squeeze a lot more in than probably, you know, my grandma or great grandma did just because of the way lifestyles are these days. Um, but, it, you know, you don't know if that's. Um, a factor or not, and and does that have an effect? So it's it's interesting to to hear your insight on that. Um, is there anything else that you want to? I want to be respectful of your time because we're going to hold you to a half an hour and then jump into to Jennifer here so that you can get on uh, to do what you need to do. Um, did you want to touch on the National Alzheimer's uh, Project Act?
2: And well yeah, this is just I mean, for your listeners, this is like the best thing that could have happened because of. Because of patient uh, advocacy groups mm-hmm. such as the Alzheimer's Association, uh, they went to Congress. Uh, President Obama passed the national, got, with the help of Congress, signed into law the National Alzheimer's Prevention Act. And the mandate is that by 2025, uh, we're supposed to develop uh, therapies that will either Will, will significantly lessen the burden of Alzheimer's disease. So you have to understand the background. I mean, right now there's somewhere between five and a half to six million people uh, with Alzheimer's disease in the U.S. And we spend about 200 billion dollars a year taking care of people uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, one out of every five people is either has the disease or is taking care of someone with the disease. And about every minute and a half, someone develops the disease. So this is a major health crisis for which we've not had appropriate funding to either prevent it or eradicate it. And so this bolus of money from the federal government is supposed to have immediate impact. There's $150 million that's been put together by Congress to mandate uh, a, a, a... goal of eradicating or at least significantly lessening the burden of disease by 2025. First part of that is going to be focused on genetics, and it's going to be uh, taking all of the existing uh, consortium, uh, and I want to come back to that in a second, all the existing consortium uh, groups are going to contribute uh, uh, samples to this so that we can do whole genome uh, mapping of Alzheimer's disease in families, in uh, people that are healthy, uh, for, for comparison, people from all ethnic groups, and cases in controls. And the target for there is to understand all of the variations in genes that cause disease, but we're also looking at variations in genes that might protect people from getting the disease. So they have all the risk factors for getting the disease, but somehow they escape. We'd like to know why. Uh, So that's uh, very important. And and the the other thing I want to just say is that uh, about 10 years ago, you wouldn't find scientists working together on this problem. But over the last few years, everybody sort of, all of the scientific community decided that we weren't making progress fast enough, and that only if we worked together, could we solve this problem. And there's been this mass uh, of scientists that have all elected to forego their egos and and work as a group uh, to try to advance science. And most of us agree that this is the most uh, collaborative and the most enjoyable work and most fulfilling work that any of us have have engaged in in our careers. And I think without a doubt something new will come out of this. I can't predict when or what but i know something new will come out of this effort
1: well that that's very exciting because when you were talking kind of about this coalition i was going to ask you who you know who is that because you know i've been hearing and, and again it is new of people having this collaborative um you know workforce and um agenda which is totally different from being siloed and again we can we all have great knowledge to be able to share and um, you know, work together for the common good. So I think that that's just absolutely fantastic. And it, and it's nice to hear, as an as an individual, you know, outside of your group, um, really that you guys are feeling empowered by this type of work too. That you're you know, you're feeling the difference, and and you sound, you know, um, I don't know, you, you just can hear the passion in your voice. I mean. It changed your whole tone um you know the sincerity it was it was just very very nice to hear how important that is, and um I would think that it's really adding um to your your work um feeling more purposeful and and feeling you know um that yeah, we are gonna get through this, and we are gonna figure this out, and we're not in it alone and and so that's um that's pretty cool, that's pretty cool to hear. Um, is there anything else that you want to add um before you have to scoot? otherwise, I'll flip it over to Jennifer and we can talk with her and get a little more detail and
2: no i, I think I, I you've allowed me to uh show my passion, which is <laughs> really something important and uh but it it you know if you talk to anybody in the consortium, you'd get the same response it's not it's not me alone. I think we all feel very enthusiastic about the progress we're making
1: well that's that's wonderful. I know, you know, for myself and the platforms that I do with, uh, you know, the radio show and the resource website, and just being able to talk with people and hear, you know, what's going on. I mean, it just energizes me. It, it very much excites me, and so that's one of the reasons I absolutely love doing the show. Is you know, gives me an opportunity not only to learn but to be able to share that with our listeners and just make make a broader base where we do all feel connected. And um, raising all of our knowledge base. So, thank you so much for the work that you do, and um, thank you. we appreciate it very much. And I am so happy that you were able to be a guest here on our show today.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Okay, we have a wonderful day. And Jennifer, um, can you tell us a little bit about what is your role um, in working with Dr. Mayo and um, and the Tau Institute?
3: So I, I wear a couple of hats. I think the the most significant is really um, managing all the genetic research projects that we do that involve uh, families participating in our research. So I'm in I'm involved in everything from um, helping identify families who are uh, appropriate and willing and interested in participating in our study um, to you know getting that. Their participation to happen, to collecting the data, and then having that data ready for Dr. Mayu and his team to analyze. So that's a lot of the research that facilitation that I do. The other work um, is really the clinical work that I do, working with neurologists who see patients at the Memory Center at Columbia. And um, these patients and families come in. We, you know. Uh, I'm one of two genetic counselors at the Taub Institute, and uh, we take their family history, we see um, if they're one of those rare early onset families that Dr. you mentioned in the the beginning of our conversation, um, who genetic testing might be important for them to consider, or are they families that potentially have another familial genetic dementia other than Alzheimer's disease, or are they a family that we should um, consider enrolling in one of our research studies?
0: Okay.
3: Uh, and I guess the other thing I do is a lot of education. So I spend time, um, you know, going out into the community, perhaps giving a talk about our research about Alzheimer's disease. Um, I... Uh, also train genetic counselors who want to learn about Alzheimer's disease. There aren't many genetic counselors who specialize in this condition around the country, so I I work very closely with um, two training programs who uh, are trying to expose genetic counselors to other conditions that are not as simple in their genetics as the ones that they're commonly trained on. So I, I do a lot of that training.
1: Okay. We do have a question from somebody in our audience, and um, Kathy has asked, you know, both her mom and um, her mom's mom have passed away from Alzheimer's disease, and does it go from generation to generation? You know, is there is there any certain patterns with that? And I know that you you know can't give medical advice over the phone, but just kind of in a generality, she said that she just um, failed her, her mini-mental, and I'm not sure how old Kathy is if that would and it'll be helpful um, to have that information. But what would you say to somebody, um, you know, asking that question? What should their next steps be? Is that something um, that they should pursue in terms of genetic testing? What are your thoughts on that
3: Well, counseling? so there's a lot of questions in that. Um, But to start with someone saying, I have a memory problem. I've noticed a change in myself. That's not... For, that's it's not to start with a genetic test that's not where you start where you start is with a physician and ideally a physician who's a specialist in memory disorders um, you could start with your general practitioner first um, and then perhaps move on to a neurologist who's a specialist in memory disorders but that's really a clinical question to see you know what's going on in this person and that they're they're having um, memory complaints that are impacting day to day life. And um, is that something that should be addressed with medication treatment? Is this Alzheimer's disease or is it something else? Um, in the context of someone coming to see a neurologist with the the, the the complaints of having, you know, seen a change in their memory and a family history, then we take into consideration that family history also. Now, if it's an early onset family history, meaning, you know, like Dr. Mayhew was talking about, those very rare instances of people um, developing symptoms of Alzheimer's disease in their 30s, 40s, 50s, um, and we see that pattern in multiple generations of people with this condition, same, con- you know, we suspect the same condition, early onset Alzheimer's disease, in Subsequent, or in previous generations, and the same in the person who's sitting there talking to the physician, then genetic testing could be indicated and may be helpful in confirming the diagnosis. I just want to emphasize that that's a very rare scenario. Most people um, do not present with that early onset history.
1: Okay. Is there is there anything in terms of does it follow the the mother's bloodline or the father's? Is there any um, no, any information that's substantial that you'd feel concrete in terms of sharing regarding that, or we're just not there? No,
3: it doesn't. It doesn't work that way. Um, it's not something that's maternally inherited or paternally inherited only. You know, um, we see that. You know, I see the families with very significant histories in our research. And by significant, I could give you an example of, you know, a a family where there are six siblings and all six siblings had Alzheimer's disease and their mom had Alzheimer's disease and mom had, you know, five siblings and three of those siblings had Alzheimer's disease. I mean, that's a very significant history. And that's not the typical experience of someone with a family history of Alzheimer's disease. a family history might be, well, mom had Alzheimer's disease and grandma had Alzheimer's disease, like the collar. Mm-hmm. And the the way we, we, we do know that, um, you know, everyone's at risk for this condition because age is the, you know, significant risk factor. As we get older, our risk increases. So everyone in the general population is at risk for this condition. Mm-hmm. But we also know that family history of a first-degree relative with Alzheimer's disease is is another risk factor. So someone who has a first-degree relative, a mom, dad, sister, or brother with Alzheimer's disease, has an increased risk above that general population risk. Okay? And we think that as there are more relatives in a family history, in someone's family, with alzheimer's disease that risk is probably increased above that person with just one first degree relative but we can't give a good number to estimate their risk and say oh your risk of getting alzheimer's disease is x percent we don't really have that risk assessment tool
1: okay okay is that um Any idea in terms of when that might be coming down the pike? Is there anything um, even, you know, that there's getting chatter about that we're getting close, or do you think that's still a ways off? And
3: and, um, sort of tying this back to the panel that we were on last night, the, the recurring theme was that Alzheimer's disease and the genetics of Alzheimer's disease is very complicated. And as Dr. Mayu uh, mentioned, it's not going to be one gene, then you get the disease. We think there are probably 10 or more genes involved in this condition. And I don't know that, I think it, it's almost like we have to learn a new way of thinking about this, because I think um, we've all been... Sort of taught in biology about Mendelian genetics, and if you have this gene and this mutation in the gene, you get this disease, mm-hmm. and your risk of this Mendelian disorder is either you know, 50% or 25% or whatever, and it, I don't think it's going to work that simply, um, and I also think that this genetic research that we're doing, I hope that it goes beyond just assessing risk and giving a number to people. I think the real goal behind it is that that sort of deadline goal that Dr. Mayu was talking about, like we want a therapeutic treatment.
1: Mm-hmm. And by
3: understanding the underlying genetics of this condition, it will help us understand why this is happening and develop potential targets, therapeutic targets, that may help either modify the disease Delay the onset, effectively treat the disease. In addition, I think understanding the genetics will help us tailor tra- treatments in a more individualized way. So that there might be genetic markers that tell us how a person will respond to a particular therapeutic intervention or th- a particular medication. So it could could be that perhaps you know some of the medications that we see. You know, some people say, even in Alzheimer's disease today, maybe the reason why we're not seeing the overwhelming response is that some people would not, are not going to respond well to that particular drug, and some would. Or maybe there's going to be a dosage difference. So I think genetics is going to help us, not just in telling us who's at risk. Certainly that will help. We'll, we'll know who's at risk and who should get that early treatment. But, and, um, but it will help us tailor treatment. And individualized treatments.
1: Was was there a discussion with the group in terms of social support, um, you know, with the the National Alzheimer's Project Act as well, or is it all, you know, kind of drug therapy um, that they're pushing? Can you can you give some insight to that for our audience?
3: There was some. I that's not my area, but do, um the there. There was a, a person who sat on the panel from the Alzheimer's Association chapter in New York City, um, Jed Levine, who talked about um, you know, the, how the funding will be used. And I do believe there is something in there about um, caregiver-related issues. I'm not sure how much or what it's directed to, uh, I think, our... Our focus here at Columbia has been the money directed at genetics because it's a very tight deadline, so we've been very sort of tunnel vision about um, getting our ducks in a row very quickly sure. to to move um, forward with the, the genetic funding that was designated for this, because that's really the first pressing deadline. Um, okay.
1: and, and with that, now... Um, in terms of, because I'm sure everybody's going after <laughs> those funds, um, you know, with kind of the coalition and things. How, who who gets to decide who gets the funds, and um, is that something you can
3: talk to, or um, that maybe? I don't really can... know. I sh- I I can't say. Okay. Um, okay. I think that the National Institute on Aging is very involved, um, and um, I think that you know there are there's a very good infrastructure that's already in place. We have a, an Alzheimer's um, disease genetic consortium that's already, you know, actively been working before these funds were um, uh, released or even, in, I think, thought of. You know, that consortium has been a work in progress that the NIA has been putting together, Dr. Mayu is um, a leader in that, you know, one of the leaders in that consortium, um, along with um, Dr. Schellenberg, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, and I think that, you know, the, the um, Alzheimer's Disease, Disease Genetics Consortium is really the ones that are leading the genetics piece of this this first set of funding.
1: Okay, okay. Well, that's, uh, that's great to know. I didn't know if there might be a way that our, our listeners could, you know, help do a yay, rah, rah for this project or that
3: project. Or, well, uh, um, it's that's a really good point that you make. I think if people go, uh, what um, Jed Levine mentioned last night is that there is a public comment period that's wrapping up quickly. And on the Alzheimer's Association's website, um, apparently there's a link to where you can Basically, you know comment on this proposal and sort of give your two cents, okay,
1: okay, wonderful. Um, now as, as far as um, the general public at large, you know with some of the the tests and the research that you're doing, is is there testing available to the general public, or um, you know how does all that work? Um, you know, are there clinical trials that you're doing, um, and you know how accurate is the, the testing and assessing? If you can address some of those questions, that I know people are anxious to
3: hear about. So, uh, I'll start with the clinical trials, um, and I, again, another plug for the Alzheimer's Association, in that they set up um, trial match. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but it's a way for people to um, go into their website and put in information about themselves, like their age, and you know even what part of the country you live in, and you know even family history information, or you know if you've been diagnosed with you know um, early stage Alzheimer's disease or whatever. Um, you can go in there and register to see if you qualify for any current clinical trials anywhere. I, I believe in the U.S. I don't know if they've gone international. but i do know um in the united states and what that will do is that you'll then depending on you know if you meet criteria you'll get an email sent to you that then allows you to contact um, any of the researchers around the country who are doing this work and find out more information and really see if you qualify the great thing about this is that research is always changing and if your information is in there the Alzheimer's Association is doing a great job of keeping this information up to date. So, for example, I'll get a call, like, every couple of months saying, are you still running this study? And if you 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 know, if you are, great, are you running any new ones that we should get registered in trial match? They're keeping it up to date, and as new information comes in, again, your information's in there, you'll get an email if something new happens that'll say, hey, guess what? You qualify for this new study. Again, it doesn't hold you to... Um, you know participation, but it gives you a very easy way to stay up to date on what's going on um around the country as far as Alzheimer's research. so I would encourage your listeners to check that out okay um, and, that, and that includes everything from observational studies to clinical drug trials, okay,
1: and so for listeners, you can go to a l v dot and their their website's pretty easy to um, you know to maneuver there. Um, I'll try to during the show here see if I can get a specific link for you. But if you go to alz.org, dot um, org, you should be able to to find it there. Wonderful. Um, was there some some other information that you wanted to share with us? You know about um, research in general or uh, anything about giving us a better understanding of the disease and how um, you know what you're what you're doing at the how the Institute?
3: Well I think the the other question that you had asked was about the availability of tests, and mm-hmm. so last night at our panel discussion, we tried to make a distinction between a clinical test, a clinical genetic test that would be able to um, test one of the genes say, for example, associated with early-onset Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So, giving the scenario of a, of a patient coming in to see, you know, one of our clinicians at the memory center who has early-onset Alzheimer's disease and a significant family history of early-onset Alzheimer's disease. So, a parent with early-onset Alzheimer's disease perhaps that parent had a brother or sister with early onset Alzheimer's disease, and maybe even the generation before, if they know about that. Well, that might raise a flag that says, you know, genetic testing for early onset Alzheimer's disease is indicated here. Then I'm involved. I'm counseling that patient and their family to talk about: Do they want to get this test? Um, everything from what it te- you know what it means, what it doesn't mean, how it might help, how it's not helpful. Um, and then would facilitate uh, doing that test and sending it off to the lab that offers that test, um, and then would communicate those results back to the family once they came back. If the results come back that in fact there is a mutation in one of those three genes that causes early onset Alzheimer's disease, that is a confirmation of that person's diagnosis, but it also gives information to the children of, the next, of that patient. So if a person has early onset Alzheimer's disease and that significant family history, we do the test, it comes back that they have a mutation, that person's children are at 50% risk of inheriting that same disease causing mutation. There's also a 50% chance that they don't inherit the mutation. And this is one of those sort of simple Mendelian diseases that we learned about in high school biology.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, The issues are, why would someone want to know that information? Why would a healthy, say, 20-something-year-old person want to get a genetic test that says, when I'm around, say, my parents' age, I'm going to get the same condition? Mm -hmm. And that's another time when I come in and I facilitate For those people who do make that very difficult decision that they do want to know that information, I facilitate what we would call predictive testing. Again, let me emphasize that's a rare situation. But those are the tests that are available versus the research that we're talking about that we've been doing looking for other genes that we suspect are involved in the more common form this late onset Alzheimer's disease.
1: Okay. Now, when it comes to um, the actual testing, is that something
3: that's covered by insurance? For a great question, Um, it varies insurance to insurance. Generally, so I've had situations with some insurances who will definitely cover that, and then others where we have to make the case of the value for that. Okay. Um, For example, you know the the sort of medical necessity. Um, and you know, you can see where there, there would be some value in making that confirmation because then you wouldn't have to continue perhaps doing some of these other, maybe more expensive, more invasive tests. Mm-hmm. If there was some other uh, form of dementia resulting in this young person. So the the answer is sometimes. Okay. Insurance will cover that. In the situation of someone you know, a a young person who has a known mutation in their family causing disease.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, Predictive testing is unlikely to be covered by insurance. I I don't think it would be covered by insurance. In my experience, people don't want their health insurance company to know this information. Um, Even though there is a law to protect you from discrimination in your health insurance, but people don't want this information just to be known by anyone. And um, so they pay for it out of pocket. And uh, I think if the people were to use their insurance, it's unlikely that it would be covered because there's really no medical necessity to to doing this test.
1: Okay. And and what if somebody wanted to pay out of pocket? What does something like that run?
3: You Another a- great question. Um, you know, I was just talking to the other genetic counselor that I work with that it's like a moving target, these costs. They're, they're always changing, and uh-huh. it also depends on what's needed. So, if you need to look at the whole gene to find a mutation, the cost is greater versus if you know the mutation and you can just test for that specific mutation. So, depending on a test that you're doing and depending on what laboratory you need to work with. A genetic test can cost anywhere from you know three hundred dollars to three thousand dollars or more, depending on the disease and depending on how many genes you need to look at. All of those things.
1: Okay, well that that makes sense. I was I was glad you brought up that some people don't want their insurance companies to know because I hear that conversation a lot. Really, you know, I I don't. You know, they're scared to death of what's going to happen. and Am I going to lose coverage or am I not going to be able to afford coverage if I get tagged with this, even if they do want to know? Um, And so that is, you know, it would be nice if there was a way to work that into the project too because I think that that can be holding research back because that's an important factor for people.
3: And, um, you know, a a really important point for your visitors or for your listeners to know in that, you know, people who are doing genetic research and um, take great pains and are very conscious of um, confidentiality issues. So it, it would, you know, I think as far as genetic research participation, we're, we're in really good shape as far as all the measures that we take to protect patients identifying information. Um, and there are laws also to protect people and different... Mechanisms that, in particular, the National Institutes of Health has put into place with certificates of confidentiality. And, you know, anytime we have a collaboration, there's always someone scrutinizing are we taking proper safety measures to do this collaboration? So I think, in terms of genetic research, we're in really good shape. I also think that the GINA law, um, that's the Genetic Information Non Discrimination Act. Um, you know I, I i don't know i don't know that that law has been tested yet that is in a situation where someone's getting that information clinically it's not about research participation
0: mm-hmm. um
3: but it it protects people from discrimination um from in their health insurance and in their job okay and um while i don't know if it's been tested yet in the courts and i don't think it has i think it is reassuring to know that we do have that legislation in place
1: definitely Definitely, and Kathy, who had asked the question earlier, said, you know, that was really, you know, one of her concerns. I mean, people are afraid to go to the doctor to find out, um, even though they know they might need help or there might be something that could support them through this and and be able to calm them. Um, It's very scary of are they going to be penalized even though they're saying they're not by the insurance companies. Right. so there's there's a great fear wrapped around that, and i think and I think a lot of distrust with our insurance companies <laughs> as a whole um because that kind of seems to be a moving target too in terms of um you know how they change things and how they grade us as an individual in terms of insurability and so um you know again, that would be nice if if that was looked at as well within this project because we do have a lot of people out there that are or you know have concerns and have great interest and to be wonderful advocates, and you know do everything that they could to help move things along, but again are very afraid of of being penalized um, for for their efforts um, you know in things, so I know we're wrapping up on time here, and again, I want to be time conscious for you as well. I did add to our um, website on the home page here a link that goes to uh, your university, and um, it'll bring you right to the Alzheimer's page. And so, um, you know, just feel free to click on there if you want to get a hold of Dr. Uh, Mayu or or Jennifer um, as well, and they would be glad to help you out and, um, you know, see if what they're doing um, might be of assistance to you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add, Jennifer?
3: No, but thank you very much for um inviting me on your uh on your program. Well, I appreciate
1: having you with us so much. It was very informative, and um maybe we'll have you back again when there's another breakthrough or a gathering um that you'd like to update us on um, We're always looking for more information to be able to push out to to the audience um you know we have people listening around the world, and it's just a nice economical way to be able to you know spread spread the word. Um, utilizing another platform and getting people engaged. So, again, thank you so much for all you do. I really appreciate it very much and hope you have a wonderful weekend.
3: Oh, thank you very much. You too.
1: Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Next are guests to be Rick Phelps and Gary LeBlanc, and I'm just going to get them both on the line here and enter into our room. For those of you that are not familiar with Rick, Rick was diagnosed with early onset um, Alzheimer's disease in June of 2010, and he is kind of our living professional on the radio show. And um, he pops in and out, but he has some very exciting news that he wants to share with us. Um, Rick was in law enforcement um, in an EM for over 24 years and then he was forced into early retirement um from his career um and you know it's just been kind of a, a tough time but what i've admired so much about this man is um his get up and go he has not let this disease um you know keep him down he has created uh, Memory People, which is a closed group on Facebook, which is absolutely a phenomenal support group that connects people all around the world. And I'll let him talk about that. Um, But today he is going to share with us a couple of new initiatives that he has going. Um, In addition, Gary LeBlanc is an author of Staying Afloat in the Sea of Forgetfulness. And he is also a weekly columnist um, for Common Sense Caregiving um, down in the Tampa, um, in Tampa area. And he does a lot of uh, other health publications. His writings utilize over 3,000 plus days as a personal caregiver, um, helping Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers cope with everyday challenges and struggles. And so the two of them have um, kind of formed a collaboration and got Rick's story in writing. And so I want to welcome you both today. How are you?
2: Hi, Lily. How are you?
1: Good. Good. And Gary, are you with us too? Yep,
2: yeah,
4: I'm
1: here. Okay, wonderful. Well, what I want to do is um, I'm going to go ahead and let Rick start and tell us about the book. If you want to go ahead and announce the title and, and tell us how this came to be and how um how you and Gary are working together. That would be wonderful.
5: I sure can, Lori. This uh this started out with me, it was kind of a brainstorm, if you will, maybe about a year and a half ago. I knew uh, I had a story to tell and it wasn't only my story, it was the story of struggles struggles with this disease. And so I I wanted someone I knew I couldn't write it, but I wanted I needed someone to write it for me. So what I did was um, Gary joined Memory People probably close to a year ago now, I guess. I'm not sure about that. And he is a writer, as you know. He wrote, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't. (laughs) I'm having a little tough time today. Staying Afloat in a Sea of uh, Forgetfulness. Are you still there? Yep, we're still here. I'm sorry, I thought I lost you. Yeah, he wrote that book, and he agreed to uh, collaborate with me and be my writer. So, we teamed up, and, and this book is called uh, "While I Still Can," and I titled it that because that's what I, I usually tell everybody. I want to keep doing what I'm doing while I still can, and uh, it's coming from a patient's perspective. But Gary is the writer from a caregiver's perspective because he cared for his dad in his home for over 10 years up until his final days, and he did uh, have the opportunity to have him there when he finally when he did pass away. So. Um, we're real excited about this, and, and I'm going to let Gary take the lead now, and he he knows a lot more about books than I do.
1: Okay, Gary, can you can you tell us a little bit about how the book is structured and, and what people can expect with this book?
4: Uh, well, I think what's really unusual about this book is that you actually get to see the disease through the patient's eyes and uh, the caregivers and uh, the patients that can learn from this together, which is which is a fantastic situation. I mean. And you know, just writing this book, I learned stuff from Rick, you know, going through all, we did this through audio recordings and audio recordings and things that I really wish I had known while I took care of my own dad because the sort of things you just can't ask the patient. You know, if I would ask my dad a certain question while I was bothering him, I'd get two, three different answers within ten minutes. So, you know, but this way you can actually see how the patient's suffering and what they're going through. That's, that's very interesting.
1: Well, great. Now, um, Can you tell us, you know, is the book kind of a, is it chronological of Rick's disease or, um, you know, how are are stories or tips shared? How have you structured it? It
4: it starts off uh, basically when he's getting diagnosed and how 17 minutes basically changed his life completely. And then we go back to all his all going from when he was going all through the all the symptoms nobody could figure out what was going on. It took this man almost seven years to get diagnosed. I mean, there was a lot of stuff to go through on this. So uh, as, as we go through it, then we go through all the symptoms of so what he's suffering, what he's going through today, um, the sense of developing a memory people. It's a little bit of a biography and a little bit of climate sense caregiving all mixed in together with this. It. So it's pretty okay. interesting. Right now it's at the publishers. It's uh, basically they're working on uh, designing for the the dust jacket in the covers right now. It's uh, We're looking at a late April, May release on it, so it's getting close.
1: Now, um, in terms of release, will it be in bookstores, or is it going to be more of a social media and speaking engagements book? How, how will people be able to access the
4: book? It's going to be a print-on-demand. You can order it from all the Barnes & Nobles, Amazon, all your major online dealers. You'll be able to order the book through it. Going to be Kindle, e an ebook, and we're all, they're also going to do an audio book version of it, which will probably come out maybe a month or so later.
1: Oh, wonderful, so, an audio book. That's
4: great. That's great. Well, Rick, Rick was really uh, evident about that. He wanted to make sure that the people with the disease were going to be able to handle it. Most, you know, how you lose your reading skills as you go through this. So he was really wanted to have this thing on audio book. So we get that all set up too on it. So. Okay. Great. Cool.
1: That that's fantastic. Now, um Rick, do you um can you share with us maybe a a couple of symptoms for example that you that you had um that are in the book? Is that something that you're comfortable sharing with or yeah. or Gary? Okay.
5: Well, mm-hmm. like Gary said, uh the book starts out um with my diagnosis and even before my diagnosis and it just walks you through the whole uh, symptoms of early onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we tried to take the reader on a roller coaster ride, and I think we was good at that, and, and it takes the reader to a place that they've never seen before, and just like Gary said, the first chapter is titled 17 minutes, and I was given a, a fatal diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's disease in a total of 17 minutes, and what we tried to explain there is that, you know, uh, we needed information. And, and this guy was a neurologist, but still. And even though we'd been in EMS for 24 years, we, hadn't, we didn't know who to turn to. We didn't know what to do or anything like that. So I'm, I took it upon myself to get a hold of the Alzheimer's Association and some other uh, fine organizations and, uh, and, and learn from them. But it, it shouldn't have to be that way. Uh, it's a, it's a must, and we've talked about this before, Lori. That's a must that these doctors and neurologists uh, have pamphlets available and and oh, uh, you know, information, the phone numbers to where when you are given this diagnosis that you have somewhere to turn to when you leave the doctor's office. I remember on our ride home, we just was stunned. We're like, well, wow, what are we going to do now? You know, it it actually it changes your entire life the minute. That you're diagnosed. I mean, I knew I had a problem long before that, but when I got the official diagnosis, it uh, well, it just changes your life forever. Then. Well, yeah. in the fact, one of Excuse me, Gary.
4: I was just going to say, in the first chapter, basically ends as uh, the doctor says, "Here's your diagnosis. I'll see you in six months," and that was it. So I mean, it's um, pretty shocking. Shocking thing to go through a lot of trauma.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I I one of the things that I appreciate so much about Rick is his honesty um and your willingness to share. I mean, you 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 know, you just kind of I, I have not read the book, but um just in my conversations with you and seeing what you're, you know, all of your initiatives with memory people and your your support groups and so forth, um you are just so honest about this disease and and how it's affected you, how it's affected your family, your work. Um, your community in general and then you don't just sit there and whine but you come up with ideas to fix things and to make some changes and you know you had mentioned about you know the doctors really need to understand the impact of this diagnosis it's not you know it's not write a prescription and walk away you know because hey you don't get that it's not going to get fixed you know at this point Um, there might be some things that can help slow it down or deter it for a little while but I mean, it's it's much more than, you know, going in for an antibiotic or something. And um, as you know, Norms McNamara over in the UK had announced a, a really exciting conference that he went to that would be so wonderful if we could get that initiated here in the U.S. where, you know, they had a conference of doctors and at every table sat one person with early onset and they were there to teach the doctors.
5: And he said it was absolutely
1: Absolutely amazing And so every time I have an opportunity I mention that because it would be So nice to see that happen And see that be embraced because You know you have taught So many people Norms has You know Dr. Richard Taylor And so many others with this disease The more people that we get Sharing what it's really like um, The better we'll all be With that so I'm I'm very excited about your book because I think it really will give an honest feel for not only the process but what it's like and what you have done um, to make a difference and not just let this disease swallow you whole and take you and your family down. I mean, you're just um, making some huge, huge differences there. So I, I think that that's I, – I just can't commend you enough. Um, for your honesty and your bravery, because it, it's not an easy thing um, to process and to deal with and to go public with, and um, you have done all of those things.
5: So, well, Lauren, I I
1: can,
5: I, I, mm-hmm. I can tell you, me and Phil June, we talked about this for at length before we ever uh, took this on, because you know it is going to open up our our personal life, and and but it's so important to both of us that people. Uh, caregivers and patients alike understand, and just just advocates understand what a patient and a caregiver goes through daily, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not like I have a bad day every now and then. I have a bad day every day, but some of my days are now worse is what it's boiled down to now. I've found going on these radio uh, shows, the last two or three I've done, I always have someone on the other phone with me because I I never lie to anybody about anything. I just don't. I'm a very honest person. I always have been, but it's to the point to where I sometimes say something. Uh, I mean, I could I'll give you a perfect example. Somebody asked me a while back how long we've been married, and I said we got married in 1997. <laughs> well, that was 20 years <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, it's just a misstep, and and I don't catch myself with those things, and I I don't want. That to happen as much as I can help it because, you know, well Rick Phelps said this or Rick Phelps said that, you know, and I tell everybody I'm not a expert in this disease. I'm just a patient, and and they need to understand that uh, sometimes I do misspeak. That's you can ask Gary. I mean, I've sent him hundreds of recordings, and he'll get back with me and he'll say, Rick, uh, you know, I needed a recording about this, and you started out on that, but you ended up (laughs) talking about something else entirely different, and that's just how it works with my with the disease i i get off track uh, very easily
0: mhm
1: and and again those are things that that we all need to know and we need to understand um your administrative assistant leanne put in the chat box you know how to get a hold of uh, memory people on facebook so i'm adding that to our front page here so that people will have that and then of course i'll put that in uh the blog when i when i do that as well so Um, people will have a chance to be able to get a a hold of you. Um, Is there anything else, you know, regarding the book that you want to share? Are you – maybe I should ask this question first. Are you putting in there what you'd like to see change in the future from medical and family and community? And, Gary, you can go ahead and answer that if you'd like. Yeah, Gary –
4: um, the, one of the things that we, we really drill on is on the denial from the families and everything else, and we're hoping that's going to change a lot. I mean, the denial is so strong with the disease, especially with the early onset because of the younger age. It's um, so we're hoping that uh, with people that read this book is going to learn from the awarenesses, even the employees and everybody else, that they just uh, a lot of people get criminalized, that they're is that they're lazy. I mean, it's just it is a disease, and people aren't aware of it. So this, uh, that's one thing that we're hoping to change with the books on it. As far as the future stuff, I man, we're all hoping for the best on everything on it, and uh, we're coming a long ways, but I think we're, the whole disease is still in the learning stage. So it's all going to be about awareness. And uh, yeah. awareness is the other big thing we're pre- preaching on the book. I mean, we, we're, we're telling everybody to spread the awareness throughout the book. So.
1: Yeah, and that that's critical because this, this is not a disease of one. This is a disease of society, and we're not going to change it alone. Um, just like, you know, my my first guest talked about Doctor Mayo and, and, and Jennifer Williamson, um, in terms of the coalition that's not happening with the research. I mean, how exciting is that? Where they're actually sharing right. information and instead of being siloed and separated and everybody thinking that they can do it alone. I, I just think that's that's fabulous. And if we can ignite that in the general public and as well as business professionals in, in the various industries to say we are not in this alone. Let's let's work together. I think that's just wonderful. It's absolutely I'm just wonderful. So
4: happy. I was happy to hear you talking about the genetics Because I think this is such a big part of it. I mean I know one family with this, all seven of them have early onset. I mean, so there's there's something seriously going on with the genetics when I think about the early onset that comes there needs to be way more in research. Still research to it.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's uh it is uh, you know, well it's just all such an unknown and there's there's so many different ways to be able to go in and tackle this. Um that, you know, it's all just gonna take a little little bit of time and energy. But again, if they're working together and sharing information, you know, that should push everything along too. So anything else that you wanted to tell us about the book or?
4: Uh, the one thing that I really was uh, wishful for is that I'm hoping that everybody in the medical industry and <laughs> in the professional medicine, should read this book too, because people that are, even the medical staff really has to get an understanding of what these people are going through. And this is a good opportunity to do it, because, like I said, this is basically the disease through the patient's eyes. And I mean, how much can you beat that? I mean, that's, that's pretty good on that, as far as I'm concerned. It's a perfect learning yeah. opportunity for everyone.
1: Now, did Phyllis June take part in it too? Is she? Does her voice get heard in this as, as your wife and care partner, Rick?
5: Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, she uh, she had a lot of input on it. And matter of fact, now that we're winding down to it, there's a lot of decisions and choices to be made. And and her and Gary works together on that because, as you well know, with this disease, I just have a terrible time with choices and decisions. And there's a lot to be made. So. Oh uh, yeah, she was behind it 100 percent, and uh, a chapter was dedicated to her. and How she deals with uh, being a spouse of an Alzheimer's patient, and uh, you know, she she really gets uh, personal about what she goes through. Okay. She was fantastic all so, the way through
4: this. She so she was a big help okay. of this book. I don't we could have done it without her really.
1: Well, that's good. Well, you know, it's it's all about that partnership and. Um, you know, like I said, you're not in it alone. Um, you've got your family, you've got your friends, and then you've got all of us viral social media support out here as well um, that will help try to push you along any way that we can and, and raise the voice to what it is you're doing. Now, Rick, you also wanted to talk about, um, if we're done with the the book, um, you also wanted to talk about a song. Um, do you want to tell people a little bit about your song?
5: Sure. Um Uh, Several months ago, maybe six months ago now, I've I've been kicking around the idea of writing a song with a good friend of mine named Dan Mitchell, and Dan Mitchell and I have been lifelong friends, play guitars together and things like that, and uh, he's now a record producer in Nashville, Tennessee. He runs the uh, Tracking Room. He deals with artists like Brooks and Dunn and Reba and Martina McBride and Alabama. Well, the list just goes on. So I got a hold of Dan and... uh, we got our heads together, and we took um, Dan was a member of Memory People, and he took a, took a lot of the uh, sayings that, that I post on there, and, and he's seen the struggles that i was going through, and, and other people were on that site, and we just come up with a song, and uh, it's, uh, it's on iTunes now. Like I said, it's called uh, "Wow, I Still Can." And I've had a lot of people tell me that it's a heart-wrenching song, and it is, but uh, so is this disease. And I was very adamant with Dan when we wrote this. I wanted it to be about Alzheimer's and about memory impairment, but I didn't want the words Alzheimer's in the song. And uh, we we ended up being able to do that. It was, it was a difficult task, but uh, it took us about three months. Some songs I know I wrote in ten minutes or overnight, but it took us a while to get it, get it pieced together. But uh, we're real proud of it.
1: Okay.
0: Well, how about if we play that for everyone right now? While I still can Sometimes yesterday Can seem a million years away And I'll forget exactly what to say When asked about my past Time is my enemy That's why I'm living for right now Tomorrow's just too far to think about My heart only knows one task While I still can I'm gonna hold my babies to my chest Thank God for all the ways that I've been blessed. Relive each single day from bad to best. While I still can, I'll try to help my loved ones understand how memories can fly like grains of sand and that I will remember them. You can. Don't ask me to decide Which way I want my road to turn My God, by now I thought you would have learned I will follow you on faith When I fall asleep Darkness and the demons steal my dreams Of how things were and how they still could be In a sweeter place While I still can I'm gonna hold my
1: Is. How does it make you feel when you hear the song, Rick?
5: Well, um, when when we first put it together, it it just I don't know. It was I don't know. It, it's indescribable because me and Dan's wrote songs before, but nothing it, like he said. This is the hardest thing he's ever done, and it, it was hard. But uh, it, it's a meaningful song, and I, I don't know. It turned out better than my wildest dreams. Um, I didn't know how it was going to turn out, but I'm, I was very pleased. And of course, June, she always tears up when she hears it, and I get that way every now and then. But uh, it's it's it, it tells a story, and it not only tells my story; it tells everyone's story.
1: It's just it's it's such a nice um, legacy piece, and not only to you but to the to the disease as a whole. Um, because as Kathy said here, words of truth are so beautiful and um how do people how do people get the song where can they Where can they get it?
5: Um we have it linked to iTunes and uh shockingly enough, there's about <laughs> four other songs titled that I didn't realize that, but um anyway uh dan's, dan's the uh he's he's a licensed songwriter, so his name is on the uh song it's of course titled "While I Still Can," and we have a logo there with the broken circle. And uh, it can you can like I said you can just go to iTunes and purchase it. I believe all their songs on there are 99 cents, and uh, I haven't I haven't checked the sales of it or anything like that. I I tell everyone the sales what sales we do make, what profits is going to turn right back around, good awareness, but it, it, it's more about people bringing getting people to be aware of this disease and 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 how it uh, affects others, including the patient. Daily.
1: Okay. And who did you say was the song licensed to? I didn't catch that, Rick.
5: It's licensed to me and Dan both, but uh, until next month, I don't have my uh, songwriter license. You have to be a licensed songwriter, and uh, I have. To, uh, next month, we're going to Nashville, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. So uh, I never wanted to get down this road, but when you write a song like that, um, you've just got to be licensed. Uh, we're looking at uh, either Reba McIntyre or Martina, Martina McBride to pick this song up. Um, we're going to pitch it to both of them. And like I said, they both recorded in the studios. But the trouble you have with that is it's a waiting game because they only uh, shop for songs every, you know, when, they, when they're ready to cut an album. And uh, Martina is ready just time, so it's probably going to be her, but we'll just have to wait and see what kind of a um, deal we can work out.
1: Well, yeah, and then it's you know, is it the genre they want, and you know, all of those factors, and will it fit in with the the um, the whole concept? I suppose there's so many so many layers, and I would imagine they get pitched a ton of songs and things, yeah. but I'm sure that 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 uh, something will happen with it and um, move it forward. And we're seeing more and more people um, taking this creative aspect and writing songs and doing video and doing poetry and really capturing, you know, what life is like with dementia. And um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful way to to capture an audience. Um, Because sometimes people might be listening to something and they don't even understand the story. Um, But the music then makes them listen. And all of a sudden they wanna know, what are those words? They like the melody and they like the tune. And um, again, it's it's another way to be able to capture a, a large audience, um, not only from an intellectual basis, but more important, on a heart basis. I think it's um, very, um, very, very important. So again, I thank you for doing that. And, and again, people oh, it, can go to it's, iTunes.
5: It, it's just like uh, with Memory People. Um, we Memory People does two things, and, and we we bring awareness to this disease. But uh, more importantly, we support each other on that site. And as you well know, we're over, we're close to 1,700 now members all over the world. And just a short, I don't know, a year ago, November or something like that, it was me. So, and mm-hmm. and I may have started Memory People, but it's the people there that makes that site what it is, and and keeps it going. And I couldn't be more prouder than than what we've done and been able to do there. And it's growing with leaps and bounds every day. And you know, it's just a, it's just people that 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 are there to support one another. It don't matter if it's two in the morning or six in the morning or three in the afternoon. Someone's always there to listen to listen to the event, whether you're a caregiver or patient, and it's turned out just excellent.
1: Yeah, it it really has, and it's the you know, if people have not joined this group, you know, check it out because it is so powerful, and there's. Just such a camaraderie going on there. Why don't we, um, if we're done with the song, um, there's so many things that that Rick is up to. It's just kind of amazing. I would love to be able to share with people your new about your new um, Skype support group, Rick. And so, was there anything more you wanted to say about the song, or should we go on to the next?
5: No, we can go on to this uh, group or the Skype support group meetings. Um, How that transpired, Gary is a big part of that. Um, me, and, me and Leanne kind of pitched the idea back and forth to each other, and uh, the first meeting we had was in uh, Tampa, Florida, with a uh, lady by the name of Laura Arnold, I believe was her name, and she's a really, really nice lady that I met through Memory People, and uh, she was a moderator for this support site, for this support group. And uh, we talked with Laura, and she just loved the idea. And it was very simple. She just brought her laptop to the uh, meeting. And I can't remember now how many people was there, but uh, it, it gave them the opportunity to uh, bounce questions off of me uh, as a patient. And, and a lot of times uh, caregivers or family members don't get that opportunity. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the patient's in the later stages, or they just don't want to talk about that. And I'm sure people left there with a lot more knowledge than what they come in with. I think Gary can speak to this because, uh, like I said, he was there for two of them, and, and I, I'm sure they turned out great.
4: Yeah, it was the great, greatest thing about it is that they're sitting right there and they're asking the patient all the questions they're concerned about their own loved ones. Like I said, we're back to learning from patient and caregiver, and, uh, learning from each other, which, which is a, a unique opportunity. So. When, when Rick was done with the Skyping, these people, if you saw what, there was, what the room was like, it was unbelievable. They were all laughing. They were terrible. They left the great information. It was it was a good thing to see. So, if you know of anyone that has a contact them. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's, that's what it's all up. about. Yeah, all right. without a doubt, that's, that's what it's all about.
1: How do how do people find out about um, you know signing up for the Skype group? So if so, for example, if I had a support group, I would contact you through Memory People then and say, Rick, could you attend um, um, the sure. Skype group? Is that how when it works, or do you ha- or do you have it, and then my group would join you?
5: We uh, it, it, actually, you don't even have to be a member of Memory People. It's just that so many people are that's, that's use uh, used this uh, skyping. But uh, we go through uh, a web or a email. It's uh, LeanneChambers at gmail dot com. And uh, what we like to do is, when people want to set up one of these uh, Skype support group meetings, is is me and Leanne will chat with them a couple days or whatever they want, three days before, so they'll we'll get to meet them and, and talk about. See, a lot of times at these meetings. Um, you just gotta be careful what you talk about. I, I I want them to understand that I don't I don't talk about medications and 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 doctors about going to the doctor or not going to the doctor it, because that's a personal choice. Uh, I do tell them that I'm on the Exelon patch, and I have a lot of people ask me if that helps, and I said, well, the only way I'd know is if I quit taking it. So I don't I don't <laughs> you know. But I like to stay away from the medication questions because. I'm not a doctor. For first of all, and I would never um recommend or tell anybody what to change or stop or whatever their medications. That's not what that's not what's about. It's just about me being able to express uh some of the symptoms that I deal with as far as uh say uh, maybe sundowners or or driving or just just anything uh and and like I said, uh it's Leanne Chains, L E E A N N E dhames at gmail dot com, and we'll get back with them. And it's uh, it's free; it doesn't cost a dime. And I'll go; I'll be in; I'll be included in any support group meetings that they like on a monthly basis or every other month. Or and once again, I'm going to do these, uh, like I say, while I still can. I don't know six months from now if I can do them, but uh, so far so good. Yeah. So, is there a fee for this, Rick? No, no, no fee at all. Um, I didn't. I just don't feel comfortable charging anybody for anything like this because, you know, it's just not right. You know, I suppose okay. you could charge ten dollars or fifteen or something, but I'm, you know, it's not about the money. It's about the awareness and and the educate. Just like Gary said, the educational part that they can get from it. Like I said, I didn't know this, but after I hung up, he said everybody was talking and laughing and stuff because some of the things that I talk about and bring up are comical that has happened in my life and Phil's. jeans it's not all doom and gloom but uh there is some serious serious things too so it's very it's it's just a good deal uh, for people to get involved in something like this it, all you need is a laptop and an internet connection and a Skype program okay we're not well,
0: laughing with you. I... we're laughing with
4: you excuse me chairs i said they weren't laughing at him they were laughing with him
1: Well, that's... That's yep, Good. Um, now, Laura Arnold had um, mentioned that she had you um, come to her Skype uh, group or uh, her caregiver support group that she facilitates um, from the Alzheimer's uh, family organization in, it looks like, Pasco County in Florida. And she said caregivers just came away with so much more awareness and knowledge from from both you, um, Rick and Gary. And um you know, we're really touched. There was a lot of notes taken. And Leanne is just noting in here that, you know, Skype is a free download um, to people, so there isn't any any cost for that. You know, your computer has to be able to, to run it, but um, most computers can um, this these days, you know. And depending on if it's going to be, you know, a group setting, if they're going to try to, you know, broadcast it on a, on a screen or have speaker systems, so you know, that would be something that, most facilitators would be aware of, um, and so the the connection is is free. And I guess I I was looking to see, you know, when I asked the question of was it, did it cost anything if you were charging, and you have said no that there is no charge that you know that you are just doing this to raise awareness there. So that again is just something fabulous um, that you are doing. Now, do you do? Um, Uh, Like a Skype group at all? Is that something that's happening on memory people, just amongst people, Um, people getting together doing something on that order, or is that up to individuals?
5: Well, Lori, I'll tell you, it's very difficult when we talk about that on memory people because memory people is such a tight-knit group, and we have some people on there that are not really computer savvy or don't have Skype, and' just not uh comfortable with it now we encourage everyone to Skype with each one, each other if they want to, but we really don't uh promote it if you per se because it, in a way we're we're uh, leaving a portion of the members out that just aren't able to do that and I certainly didn't want anybody to feel left out um, there on memory people there's a lot of people that we have hundreds that we have that that don't post at all, but they're there every day and they read the posts, and that's fine, because they're just not comfortable with that, and I'm sure that would go along with the Skyping. Um, It's not for everyone, you know. Nothing's for everyone, and this certainly isn't either, but uh, it is a very powerful tool that uh, I've stumbled upon, and we're using it, and for anybody that's interested. But but as far as us doing it uh, regularly on memory people, we have some people that Skype back and forth, like I said, but uh, um, we just don't push the issue because we don't want, um, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of uh, dementia patients, and you know, if you get if you get me and two or three other dementia patients Skyping, it's hard to tell it's hard to tell what you'd end up with.
1: Okay, well, yeah, and it's a, it's another new technology, and, and some people are worried about their privacy, and and I think that's one of the nice things that. You guys do so well as you really respect where people are at, um, that there is no right or wrong, and um, you know, because everybody's in a different place with this disease. And, and you know that a lot of times when people first enter the group, they are kind of voyeurs. They're just kind of out there watching like a bird on a tree, seeing <laughs> what's going on. And then all of a sudden, I, I mean, I remember going through and, and people would say, you know, I've been here for a couple of months, and then all of a sudden they speak, and it's just so profound. Um, but they needed to
5: feel safe first. Oh, um, exactly. And, and, you know, and Lori, said, this uh, Memory People is an Internet. You know, it's a social networking site on Facebook, so it's international, of course. And that's the same way with Skyping. I wanted to mention that because we have some friends over in the U.K. that uh, has participated in the in the uh, group Skype. And uh, we're just now trying to get some people uh, lined up in Australia that's going to be Skyping with me. So uh, things are looking up. I'm real excited about it.
0: Oh, very fun. Very, very
1: fun. That's, that is exciting. Very exciting. Now, you also, um, there was mentioned, and I don't know if you want to go here today or not, but Leanne had shared with me that you have created another memory group um, or memory people group, and you have many subgroups within your group. And uh, is that something that you want to talk about today, or do you want to share sure, that another time? Sure, we can go that
5: real quick. What, what it is, okay. this is Leanne's brainchild. She... Uh, what we're doing is we come up with memory people advocacy, and what that's about is on, on memory people, we like to keep the subject on dementia and caregiving and things like that, because when you start throwing everything else in there, all these important posts and people reaching out for help, they get, they get buried and things like that, so uh, we had a lot of people who weren't happy with that, and it's been going on for a few months, so we decided it's time to open up. Uh, memory People Advocacy, and this is somewhere where anybody that belongs to Memory People can go to this page, and uh, there's just anything you want to post there, like uh, sign a petition for President Obama, or, I mean, it, it's just one more way to bring awareness about this disease, and, uh, but it just doesn't take up a lot of space that it would on Memory People. It's just kind of for the advocacy part of the disease. It's. Uh, I'm sure it, that site in, in the days and weeks to come is going to be just as busy as Memory People 2 is, which is our spin-off site where it's just kind of a fun little site where people go and they tell jokes and everybody's invited but Mr. Alzheimer's and they just kind of get away from the disease. So I'm, I'm real happy she came up with this idea.
1: Oh, I think that's wonderful because it, it really will be a place that will empower people to, you know, really be able to take action and know really worldwide what they can partake in um, as it grows. So I think that that's that's an absolutely fantastic thing. And, uh, you know, Leanne again wanted to mention um, that, you know, your group is extremely safe because it is a closed group. And so comments that you make um, within the group are only viewed by group members. So they don't post to um, all of your friends and things. Uh, you're not going to see all of that, and, and I know for myself. I mean, even with Facebook, it, for me it's gotten complicated because I and, and I'm not on it as much because of the changes that they've made. I can't keep track of what's where anymore um, with the changes, um, and I, I can't keep up with all my friends because they choose who I should, you know, keep keep in contact. <laughs>
5: yeah, and you can imagine the difficulty we have on memory people because we're dealing with hundreds of patients that have dementia. And changes is not a good thing, so we're constantly working with everyone to uh, walk them through whatever change comes along. I mean, that's why we have about, I think, a dozen or so administrators that do that. They're just excellent at helping people navigate. Uh, When you join Memory People, you see these 12 or so spin-off sites. people start getting nervous, what's all this? Well it's just it's just another place. It's a it's a spin off site for memory people. We have the prayer chain and, and, and memory people recipes, which people just love. They they go there and post all these recipes and and see memory people resources, which is a, a wealth of information. Now for me it doesn't help me a bit because I can't read that much and I can't consume that much information. But for the caregiver it's just an excellent site, you know, and and there's several so uh, we don't uh, we don't push anybody into anything. We don't. Uh, it's just very laid back. Uh, you do as much as you want or as little as you want. You can post or not post. It, it just works absolutely wonderful.
1: Good. Now, for the for the resource site, would it be helpful? I mean, if people are adding things, if there was more video or audio for people um, versus trying to read through it, it, would that be easier for people with dementia? Do you think? Um, I do. Uh,
5: I mean, yeah, I do, and we have that. We have a lot of people that post uh, videos on there and, and what have you about documentaries and and things like that. But uh, some of the some of the research that's being done and things like that, there you know, it's important information. There's just not a video available, so you know, it's probably sixty uh, percent information, uh, and then maybe thirty or forty percent uh, videos, I think, or something like that, but. People post a lot of videos there about, and once again, you know, we try to keep it on, you know, resources of dementia and, and Alzheimer's and Lewy body or whatever, and uh, but it's just like memory people, <laughs> you know, if somebody strays off a little bit, it's not the end of the world, you know. It's we try to keep as as many uh, the least amount of rules that we can, uh, because you know every a lot of this I keep saying are memory impaired and and. I've broken a few of the rules more than once. I post a few songs and I thought I was on Memory People tunes and here I was on Memory People, and that's the last thing we want is that someone join Memory People and they see Bob Seger in a silver bullet band. It it just don't add up, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Oh, too funny, too funny.
1: Well, Rick, is there anything else that you want to cover? I know Gary had um, some information that he wanted to cover with another project that he's working on as well. So I'd like to give him some time, but I just want to make sure yep. I, that we cover but everything would, that you wanted
5: to cover. I would just like to take a couple minutes, and thank you, Lori, for uh, the several times that I've been able to be on your show. And, and like you mentioned, I pop in and out. I try to come on as much as I can, but some days it's just not possible. But you've made it all possible, and, and you've done a fantastic job. And then uh, Gary LeBlanc, and, and I, I've told totally missed. this, and I tell everybody that it, this book absolutely of course, like he said, Phyllis June was a major part of it. It wouldn't have got done without her, but it certainly wouldn't have got done without Gary LeBlanc. And uh, I, I just uh, I can't thank this man enough. Um, he, he has patiently, trust me, <laughs> patiently worked with me, and uh, it, it, it's just been a pleasure. And uh, I know good things are going to come out of this. So I thank the both of you, and I'll uh, leave the rest to Gary. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Rick, and keep up the wonderful work. It's great. Now, Gary, um, you know, your book that you wrote um, was absolutely um, fabulous and just such a nice, easy, sweet read. Um, And so, again, if you want to say the title of the book and let people know where they could get that, and then we can go ahead and and talk about um, some of the exciting things that are going on with you as well.
4: Well, my other book, uh, Staying Floating in the Sea of Forgetfulness, the whole goal behind that was to make it as caregiver-friendly as possible, and we kept that same tone through this next book while I still can. So uh, basically so it's for a patient, caregiver, and everybody to get through on it. Uh it available, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, all the online dealers, you know, Kindle, like I said, it's, it's downloadable. So a uh, great caregiving resource. I mean, I can't, the reviews I've had off of the first book has been unbelievable. So um, especially from the caregivers, they've all responded very highly on it. Um, the next project I want to talk to you about is just something I've been wanting to do for years. I've had this in the back of my head, and I actually started it four years ago, but I never got too far with it. There's a problem when a patient has very impaired, Alzheimer's. I don't want to just use that term, but to, specifically dementia. When they go in the hospital, what they go through and the traumatizing that they go through of being taken out of the routine is very, very highly, very highly done until killing it. And what happens is the staff doesn't realize what's going on at all times. So my idea is, what I'm trying to do is I'm passing a law here in Florida, or trying to get a law passed in Florida, that the hospital, when you're admitted to the hospital, they will give you a certain colored band on their wrist, saying that they have memory impaired. Now it could be, it doesn't have to be Alzheimer's, it could be, you uh, know, vascular dementia or anything. Because what happens with the patient on that? You have one nurse that's handling the situation very well. Well, the next night, that nurse is on the way on the other side of the wing, or the person's taken downstairs. And the staff just doesn't understand that a person that's going a period has to be handled differently. And so this is something, that, and the, recent, the backup that I have on this has been unbelievable so far. I've had letters and emails from all over I mean, Australia, Canada, saying that. I'm all just trying to this in Florida because you've got to start somewhere. But i like to see this nationwide and actually global. And uh, I have not heard one story from any caregiver that had a good, actually good, smooth stay in the hospital with their loved one. Every single one of them is broken down into a tragedy, so this is what I'm working okay. on. It's something that's very strong. Um, is the there right um, now, is where, Go
1: ahead. I, I was going to ask, is, is there a way that the audience can support you? And I'm just going to ask you if you can slow down just a hair when you're talking, because sometimes it's hard to understand yeah, when that you're talking the, stuff. <laughs> I guess
4: that's the way it would be. <laughs> yeah, um... So you, what I would suggest doing on it is to contact a, a senator, a local senator on the deal, bring up this whole deal on awareness. I just posted an article this week uh, that just actually just came out today on the whole deal about the hospital man on it. That was in, it's going to be in, was in an annual today. It'll be in the Tampa Tribune uh, the next following week. So I will post that online through Facebook, and uh, you can Google it, actually. It'll come up on it describing exactly what needs to be done on this. Uh what I was warned uh the last few weeks that now I'm learning this whole deal about the politics is that I really need to go through the hospital administration' like the Florida Hospital Association with this. I was told if I try to do passing this without them, that they will their lobbyists will just destroy us so that's my next step in this that I'm actually going to set up a meeting with them and give them a heads up on what we're doing on it so uh, the next thing I need to do is have a smaller hospital do a pilot program, and I think I've got that handled, so that's something are you, that's in the war.
1: Are you working with the Alzheimer's Association down there? Because they're just so active from a government standpoint um, with lobbying
4: I have a meeting with them with the local chapter here next week, I believe, coming up. I've been working with the Alzheimer's Family Organization, which uh, you had just mentioned from Lori Arnold and all that. There's, they're having a meeting this week to actually decide if they're 100% behind me or not. It's, I hate to say the wrong thing, but a lot of these organizations, charities, it's. They're afraid to get along behind some of this stuff if there's no money involved in it for them. And I don't want to say that the wrong way, but that's the truth of the matter on this.
0: But they Mm -hmm. all,
4: I guess, have that idea, and they can't believe how good of a guy it not already through on it. So we're working this slowly but surely. This is going to take a long time. Uh, The Florida legislation is already done for this year. Believe it or not, here we are in March, and (laughs) next month they're going to be done for anything. So you're talking next year for this gets passed.
1: Have, but, have you yeah. thought of um, you know? And I don't know if this is possible. If you've got a website, Gary, where you could start a petition and categorize it by state, where people could sign up and then push it out via social media. Is that
4: yes? That's how a- works. Okay. That is something that we've got planned. It's going to be on the works on this and here. And the next three oh, weeks is going to true. tell a lot. I mean, we really I got some serious meetings signed lined up on this thing. So the worst getting out there. I and mean, just the article today is really going to push a lot of this. So, they say that uh, you know a doctor uses a scalpel for his tool. I'm going to have to use my pen on this. So.
1: Uh-huh. But, uh huh. Well, it, you know, it sounds like word. a like a great project, and you know I'd love you know as things progress if you can you know, me updated with things because, you know, if you've got a place where people can help support you in terms of, you know, petitions or sending, you know, if you have a form letter to send it to their congressman or something, that's why I was thinking, the Alzheimer's Association just has all of that stuff in place, um, so simply um, already because otherwise you're recreating the wheel and I know it can get expensive. So. Um, but I but I do believe in the you know the grassroots efforts are really going to be making a lot of changes here when it comes to um, this disease and um, you know there's a there's a lot of great insight going on so great um, anything else that you wanted to say on that or any other projects that you're working on
4: I just want to give a small example of what happens to the patients in here basically they're they get there and they get drilled with all these questions and even looks like oh, do you know where you were born and the guy says Philadelphia. The person may have ne- never been to Philadelphia in his life, but what's happening a lot of times is being asked questions among the medical staff and all this, about what medication you're taking and all this, and they can't answer these questions. But just some of this information is being taken down. So there's a lot of danger involved in this. This is why it's important that this being isn't going to solve the problem. It's going to have to be training done with through the medical staff, but you got to start. This is a start somewhere on this. You know, it's... Um, the mistakes that are being made with the way these people are being handled is unbelievable. I mean, you, you know, I'm, my dad was fortunate enough that every time he was in the hospital, I stayed with him throughout the whole time being an advocate for him. But what about all the people that are in nursing homes and they can transfer from a nursing home to a hospital state and they have possibly nobody to talk for them there? I mean, this this is a serious problem, so.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I, the world, I yeah, I've always been one that's been lucky enough to be able to just take off and, and – you know, sit and flop, and, you know, I would stay overnight in the whole nine yards. Um, But not everybody has that luxury to be able to do that, and it does make a huge
4: difference.
0: I just had a lady write
4: to me. She said that uh, she found her husband's in the hospital. She finally got a chance to go home, take a shower, get some fresh clothes. She goes back to the hospital, and her husband's in surgery. They let this man sign himself into surgery. I'm not saying he didn't need the surgery, but she didn't even know anything about this. Wow. So... You know, yeah, this, is just, this is just what's happened. This happens every day, every minute of the day, probably somewhere. I mean, this is this is how widespread this is. So,
0: mm-hmm.
4: it's a big yeah. I'm going to get it started. I mean, it is started, but I mean, it's it's, it's going to take some time. But I believe it's going to go through.
1: Yeah, I, well, I'm sure. I'm sure it will eventually. And I think you know, the, I think the hospitals will get behind it as well because um you know this is uh, you know it's a liability issue for them and it makes it more difficult for their staff um to be able to work with both patient and family and so if we can come up with something where again kind of like with the genetics you know earlier in the show where it's collaborative effort everybody's working for the greater good um some adjustments have to be made but it really it really can you know be so much better for everyone
4: there Definitely. In a perfect world we in a perfect world, we wouldn't have to go through legislation like this, but it, unfortunately it doesn't quite work that way so Yep. yep well, that's, see
1: what happens. That's well good yep. well, thank you so much for being with us gary i I really appreciate you um and all you all you have done and all you're doing um in terms of raising awareness um because you you have um Offered up a lot of great information And you continue to write And uh, your collaboration With Rick is much appreciated And then uh, this work to kind of change Hospitalizations as well So thank you again for your time And again I want to thank Rick uh, Phelps for being on And sharing uh, with us about the new book While I Still Can And uh, same with the song While I Still Can It was very touching and talking about his support groups, and the Memory People Advocacy new subgroup as well. Um, we do have some new shows coming up here. And um, on the 22nd, we're going to have uh Ken Brain Fitness. And if you listen in to that show, you might be able to win a free brain fitness program. On the 26th, we're going to have Rick Roman on, and he has a new music video And then we're going to have Janie Jason, who's a personal friend of mine and a professional speaker whose parents had Alzheimer's disease. And she's going to talk about her journey as a daughter. Uh, We will have somebody who has early onset on April 4th talking to us. And then Naomi File is going to be on, I'm so excited, on April 6th. And she is um, renowned throughout the world for her validation program. And she is celebrating her 80th birthday and 30 years in dementia. She has been pushing for her validation program, which is now just totally embraced over in Europe and um, is really starting to be gobbled up finally here over in the U.S. And on the 12th, we're going to have author Kathy Borey. So we've got lots of fun, fun things um, coming up. So I hope that you um, are able to tune in and join us. Again, if you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you would like us on um, Facebook and go ahead and you can share the link with friends. You can um, Twitter and tweet about us. Uh, Again, this is not the Lori LeBay Show. This is about all of us joining forces and working collaboratively to share the knowledge, share the information, and share the insight. And if you think that maybe you have a story that needs to be told or you're doing something a little bit different, um, you know, give me a jingle or shoot me an email. I would love, love to talk with you because maybe you could be our ne- next guest. Again, if you are a person who is actually living with the disease or if you are a care partner, both family or professional or a researcher or an advocate, um, we talk to everybody because. It takes all of us um, to make a difference there. So again, thank you all for listening, and um, remember to focus on the three simple things when you're dealing with someone with dementia that your memory chip um, teaches you. Are they safe, are they happy, and are they pain-free? Because when we focus truly on their needs, not only does their life get better, but ours does, too, as we become not just person-centered, but we come community-centered as we move forward. Have a blessed weekend, and we'll talk soon. Bye now.
5: It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement.
4: Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed.